Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us. We ask that our hearts will be filled with your love and you will draw us into the unity and fellowship that you have designed for us in, in the beginning. We want to remember Dennis this week as he's recovering from surgery that your healing presence will be upon him and his body will recover and that, uh, that he will do well. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number two in our quarterly, The Gospel in Galatians. And the lesson uh, titled this week is Paul's Authority and Gospel. Ian, the first question I had based on the lesson title is, what is authority? Paul's authority and, uh, and, and gospel. So what is authority? What, where does authority originate? What makes something authoritative? If you're an author of something, usually you know something about what you've authored. So if someone's an author and they've done their homework, that's someone... And when I give my book out to my patients, which I do regularly, I tell them there's one rule about this book, and that is don't believe anything because it's in a book. <laughs> That's what I tell them. Just because I wrote it, don't believe it. Okay? Why, why do I tell them that? You want them to study themselves. What, what did you say? You want them to study for themselves. I want them to think and study and decide for themselves. I'm going to give them concepts to think about, but just because I wrote it, I don't want him to, well, he's a doctor, he's got an MD, he's written a book, he must have... No, I don't want him to believe because I wrote it. I want him to believe it because they've thought it out, studied the evidence, come to their own conclusion. So you're right, generally, if you're going to write about a subject, you should be, quote, an authority on the subject. What makes one an authority? They speak the truth. Uh, to, to the degree they speak the truth, Christy said. Uh, I looked up in the dictionary, and I, I've got dictionary definition here of authority. I'm going to read you these definitions. And I want you to think, do any of these pl- apply to Paul as an authority for the gospel? And this, is, this is some of the definitions. These are just straight out of the dictionary. Uh, definition one, authority. A citation from a book or file used in defense or support. The source of which the citation is drawn. A conclusive statement or set of statements, an official decision by the court, a decision taken, a precedent. Is that the definition of Paul's authority? Okay, so second definition. Authority. Power to influence or command thought, opinion, or behavior. And then the next definition. Persons in command. Governmental authority. The, um, For instance, the the transit authority is an authority over the, the, the laws of transportation and so forth. So, uh, a person in command. Is that, is that describing Paul's authority? And then the fourth definition was uh, grounds or, or warrant. An excellent authority for believing his claims. Convincing force. He lent, uh, lent authority to the performance. We had one that says suggest a third one, the governmental authority. Any else? You have to have evidence of what that what you're an authority on is is right is true you can't just say i know such and such and so and so but if you have the evidence to back what you're saying then you your authority means more i would say the fourth one the fourth one with evidence with a sense of experience with a sense of trust and with no no sense of trying to force someone so simply presenting to someone what the benefit of your experience, the benefit of your interaction with something, 
And because these are competing ideas of how we understand Scripture. Because the fourth one was convincing force. Convincing force. The third one was governmental authority, agency. Uh, Yes? Can I defend the third one? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Paul was given authority by God who these people profess to believe, just as the transit authority that you quoted is given power or authority by people we have placed in power over us. And thank thank you for articulating that because I think that actually is an idea that that is um, put forth for the authority for, for many. Let's, let's, let's test these. Let's see if we can't go through and, and see the tug and pull and the strengths and the weaknesses of the various positions. So, one would be that uh, the authority is based on the governmental uh, you know, holding of the office of that government. In this particular case, apostleship. God put him in the position of apostle. The apostleship office has authority. If that's the case... Did Peter have authority as an apostle? So then, when Peter began avoiding Gentiles to associate with Jews and was teaching this principle, he was being authoritative and we should follow his authority. I mean, he has the authority of the office of apostle. Who are we to question that authority? Could only Paul question that authority? Or should anybody question the authority of Peter in his behavior in treating Gentiles? It was contrary to how he had behaved before. It was contrary to how Peter had behaved before, except when other Jews were around. (laughs) You can have authority and convince people of the wrong thing. You can have authority and convince people of the wrong thing. My question is, does, does the authority, was Peter authoritative? when it came to socializing with Gentiles? Or did his authority somehow evaporate on that point? He had authority, but it doesn't mean he was right. Did he have authority? This is the question. This is the question I'm testing. Does actual authority come from holding an office? Or does authority come from holding the truth? Yes. I have a comment on Acts uh, 20, verses 28 to 29, which are controversial. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Yes, and what's the comment? The Holy Spirit made, us, made these people overseers of the church. Yes. God himself. Yes, and so what's the, how does that connect with the idea of authority? Well, I'm just wondering uh, which authority made them overseers, we can say, or people in charge of the church. Because elsewhere, in other documents, we find uh, the Lord. There were curios. Yes, so, we're, so it seems like we're testing this idea, and this is what I'm testing. Does authority come from an investiture in an office in a governmental system, even if it's the heavenly governmental system, and once we're invested in that office, we speak with authority. So Lucifer invested in an office in heaven. When he spoke, the rest of us should consider whatever he says authoritative. Right? No. 
This is my point. Just because you have a position in a governmental office doesn't necessarily mean what you say or do actually carries authority. The creator has it. You have to earn it. And, and, and this, these ideas are intention. I'm going to tell you in our church. Our church, the, the church has this idea that if someone is in, a, in an office in the church, elected by the board, put in by the conference, that that position gives them a certain authority. Now it does, it does within the organization to administer the organization's finances and, 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 uh, and um, resources, but does it make them an authority on all truth? Yes. Couldn't it be that the individual is invested because they, they, they act or behave like God? In other words, if they have adopted his spirit, then they are part of the group. They're part of what God wants. In other words, it is the truth. But what I'm saying is, is that because they reflect the truth, they are then asked to represent that. See, and, and, what, I'm, and what I'm questioning in your minds are, how do you relate to someone who is invested in an office of authority? See, let me read to you out of uh, Acts of the Apostles. It says, the four servants, which were Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas, of God were sent to Antioch with the epistle and message that was to put an end to all controversy, for it was the voice of the highest authority upon earth. What was the voice of the highest authority upon earth? The message that was to put an end to all controversy. It was the message that was authoritative. According to this particular passage, it was the message. What message has authority? What did Paul say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, was the power of God to salvation? The gospel is power. The gospel is authoritative. Is it the office of the one who speaks the gospel? So if I speak the gospel as a, as a, as a person, an individual who holds no office in the church, is that gospel, if I'm speaking the true gospel, is it less authoritative than if the president of the conference speaks the gospel? Does it have more authority if it comes from the president of the conference? And if the president of the conference speaks a gospel, and we're going to get to this because it's in Galatians 1 for our lesson today. Okay, If an angel from heaven should speak another gospel, a contrary. Okay, we're going to get to that in a little bit. But for the point here... If, if, if somebody in the office speaks another gospel, does their office give that false gospel authority? No. This is, this is what I'm challenging you with. How do we relate to people who are in office? The office of apostleship. How should the church have related to Peter when Peter refused to socialize with Gentiles? Should they have said, well, we're, I mean, he's the apostle. We should follow his lead. Or should they have said, wait a minute. Um, we know something about Jesus. We've met him. Jesus didn't d d discriminate against people. Look how he treated the woman at the well. Look how he treated the Samaritans. Jesus, G this is not how Jesus acts. Should they have called the apostle to account or should they have deferred to his authority as apostle? Paul called him to account. Was he the only one or should, should any person who knew Christ call him to account? How about in the church today? If we see a leader in the church with authority representing Christ like Peter did in a way that misrepresents him, should we call him to account? Or should we follow his authority? 
we should call him to account because we will be held accountable for it. And so my, my suggestion here is that ultimate authority rests in the truth about God, His kingdom, His methods, His laws, His principles. That's where the authority originates, from God, His, his nature, His character, not in just holding an office. Yes? You know, it's neat to know that God, who is the author of life, who is the creator, He is willing to demonstrate that he is willing to, you know, to demonstrate that he is worthy of that authority. And he wants us to come and reason. He wants us to come and question things. It doesn't make sense. So let me read to this out of Acts of the Apostles, page 200. It says, Notwithstanding the fact that Paul was personally taught by God, he had no strained ideas of individual responsibility. While looking to God for direct guidance, he was ever ready to recognize the authority vested in the body of believers united in church fellowship. Do you understand what is being said here? He felt the need of counsel. When matters of importance arose, he was glad to lay these before the church and to unite with his brethren in seeking God's wisdom to make right decisions. Even the spirits of the prophets, he declared, are subject to the prophets. For God is not an author of confusion, but of peace, and in all the churches the saints. With Peter he taught that all united in church capacity should be subject to one another. This is uh, Acts of the Apostles, page 200. So question here, this is suggesting that Paul, the apostle, found that he was subject to the body of believers. Do, what would happen today in Collegedale if Peter or Paul, the actual Peter or Paul, presented themselves to the church to preach? Would we believe that we could call one of them to account for what they were teaching, or would we subject our thinking to them? How do we relate to Ellen White? Do we, as the body believers, believe we can call Ellen White to account? That we can say, um, Sister White, this issue needs clarity. You are not the final arbiter of all truth. You were a human being who was growing in her understanding, and truth moves forward in time. We are 150 years past what you, your understandings were. We can grow in your understanding. Or do we say, Ellen White was the arbiter of all truth. We subject our thinking to the filtration of her mind, and we think everything through the lens of what she thought. The church as a whole calls for the spirit of prophecy, um, which is an error. You know, she wasn't the spirit of prophecy. She was gifted with she said of herself not to take her as the final authority, to always go back to the Bible. So, so I, I'm hopefully getting you guys to think. I, I hope you haven't heard me come down with a rule on what you should do. I'm not suggesting any rule on what you should do, other than possibly Romans 14, what Paul himself said, that every person should be fully persuaded in his own mind that each one of you need to think, evaluate, come to your own conclusions. This is out of a Great Controversy, page 243. The tension between authority of an apostle, an apostle's relationship to the body of believers, how do we relate when the body of believers come together and form a conclusion? Throw this into the mix. Great Controversy, page 243. In the presence of the monarch and the leading man of Sweden, Olaf Petri, with great ability, defended the doctrines of the Reformed faith against the Romish champions. He declared that the teachings of the fathers are to be received only when in accordance with the scriptures. 
that the essential doctrines of faith are presented in the Bible in a clear and simple manner so that all men, all men may understand them. Christ said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And Paul declared that should he preach any other gospel than that which he received, he would be accursed. How then, said the reformers, shall others presume to enact dogmas at their pleasure and impose them upon as things necessary for salvation? He showed that the decrees of the church are of no authority when in opposition of the commands of God and maintain the great Protestant principle the Bible and the Bible alone is a rule in faith and practice. So I, I read the, the quote where Paul recognized the authority of the church. But now we have a quote that the church doesn't have authority if it contradicts the teachings of the gospel or the Bible. So we have to hold all this in balance, don't we? That's why you have to think. You can't just say, well, the church board voted, therefore it, it's authoritative. The church board voted for pastor so-and-so to be our pastor, therefore he is God's appointed man in this role. Maybe he is. Maybe he's not. Was Caiaphas God's appointed man in the role of high priest? Everybody thought he was. Yes. In Titus 3.1 and, and little, several other areas, Paul says, we bind them to be subject to the rulers and to the authorities and to obey and be prepared for every good work. Last week on the radio, there was a, a sermon uh, preached about how we are to be subject to the rulers and authorities of our government because they have been established by God himself. Up to what point? Well, that, that was never mentioned. Yeah. So what do you think? Is there a point that, that that ceases to be true? I mean, that was the actual argument I want you to know. What you just read was used by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis to bring people in line. Our government was put here by God. You are to obey our teachings and our government. They, re- they, they quoted those very passages for support for what they were doing. Yeah, in the back. Um, off of what you said about uh, him, the rulers being appointed by God, that was written in the time period when divine right of rulership was a main theory that was accepted that kings and rulers were appointed by God. So could we not take that as a cultural context instead? Well, I like the th- where you're going with that. Um, and, and, and you know, some, we're gonna, this is one of the questions that come up this afternoon in our Let's Talk is about how do we relate to Scripture? And one of the questions submitted was, isn't Scripture God-breathed? Who are we to question Scripture? Shouldn't we just take it as it reads? And, uh, and we're going to explore that in some detail, but you're exactly right. Do we, do we need to take the context? In fact, maybe we should, should jump on to our next, um, our next topic because it comes up here in our lesson today, too. Sabbath lesson. Um, it says, Talking about the students at a university built a center on their campus where everyone, regardless of race, gender, social status, and religious beliefs, would be welcome. Imagine if years later these students returned to the campus only to discover that other students had redesigned the center instead of a large room with plenty of space for socializing, designed to bring a sense of unity for everyone there. The room had been subdivided into many smaller rooms with entrance restrictions based on race, gender, and which day of the week you go to church. Uh, the students responsible for the design might have argued that the author of uh, the authority to make these changes came from the centuries-old established practices. This is something like the situation that Paul faced when he wrote the letters to the Galatians. His plan that Gentiles could join on the basis of faith alone was being challenged by false teachers who insisted that Gentiles must be circumcised before they become participants. 
You know, uh, just one little point of clarification. Um, was it Paul's plan that the Gentiles should be able to join by faith alone? Because it says it's his plan that Gentiles should join by faith alone. Was it Paul's plan? Was it God's plan? Just a slight clarification. I, I'm sure the authors meant that. Paul, then he was articulating God's plan. Um, why did the Judaizers think that circumcision was necessary? There was a scripture for it. Yeah. God had told them to do it. Do we ever struggle with issues like this in our church today? I received a piece of literature two weeks ago. Here, somebody came up. I don't know who it was. I don't even know if you're here today because uh, I really don't know who it was. Somebody came up and dropped a, a little piece of literature up here for me and I uh, afterwards. And in this literature, as I perused it, many pages long, little pamphlets, the entire argument was that the Jewish feast days and holidays were still binding on Christians today. And that in order to be prepared for the second coming, we have to start observing the Jewish feast days. Was there any difference in that argument than what the Judaizers are doing about circumcision? No. <clears throat> yeah. I think one of the key things, you know, there's not a problem with God's word, and I think Spirit of Prophecy, or Ellen White's writing, sure, a huge asset for me, but just if we don't sit down, if we disagree, don't quite see things in context, it's, we don't sometimes press together. There's a, there's a tendency we don't talk or dialogue. We don't continue to press together, and that's the main issue. Is my pride or their pride or both keeps us comfortable not tolerating that, realizing one of us might be on a sinking ship. Well, this is what I want to put forth. What did the this idea that you had to be circumcised, what was its functional impact? What did it, what did it, what did it actually do to somebody wanting to come to Christ? Barrier. It put up a barrier. What would be the functional impact of saying that in order to be ready to meet Christ, you have to observe the feast days? It's another barrier. I want you to notice the process here. Now, is there anything wrong with an individual who studies Old Testament and says, you know something, I would like for personal reasons to... to you know, go through the process of, of practicing and experiencing these feast days to, to maybe get a sense of what it was like for my own spiritual development, my insight, my, my personal relation with God. Is there anything wrong with practicing those if you want to? No. Not at all. Certainly not. Is, there, is that different, though, than saying to people, if you don't practice them, you won't be ready to meet Jesus? Are th- those, those are completely different, aren't they? No. Yes, and this is, this is the difficulty uh, I, I think the same thing would have been true for circumcision. I don't think Paul would have said if somebody wants to be circumcised, uh, well, you, you know, you can't be circumcised. But his argument was if you think you're being circumcised and that's how somehow benefits you for salvation, if that how somehow is necessary or, or achieves something for you, that's what the argument of Galatians is, well, then you better keep all the law. If you're doing it for salvation purposes, well, you're lost because it doesn't save you to do it. You see, it's adding a barrier. Thursday's lesson Second paragraph, because we're talking about circumcision, it says, Why did Paul not require Gentile converts to be circumcised? Paul's opponents claimed it was because Paul wanted conversions at any cost. Maybe they thought that because Paul knew that Gentiles would have reservations about circumcision, he didn't require it. He was a people pleaser. In response to such allegations, Paul pointed his, uh, pointed his opponents to the strong words he had just written in verse 8 and 9. Do we struggle with this as well today? with erecting barriers to people who want to come to Christ, not just the the feast days. I I received this email two weeks ago from someone that listens to us online. This is what, what it says. 
I've, re- I've recently had a very trying and trouble- troublesome time in my church. I was asked to serve on the nominating committee and heard some very disturbing things about our church family. A man's name was mentioned as, as someone we should find a place for to serve in the church. This same man is asking for rebaptism, but is being denied because he smokes. Now, it seems contradictory to me that the pastor won't baptize him because he is smoking, but wants us to find a place for him to work in the church. I personally feel that he should be baptized and let the Lord deal with him on his health habits and lack thereof. I don't recall that Jesus or the John the Baptist had any such requirements before they would baptize people. And next, there is another member who, according to one of the nominating committee members, flagrantly flaunts his addiction to caffeine by drinking Pepsi at potlucks. <laughs> and therefore, he should not be asked to be an elder in the church. I'm not sure why people feel such a need to judge on these superficial things. It is just so disturbing to me, as it often will keep the very souls who need Jesus the most out of making, uh, keep, keep them out and make us very unwelcoming people. Satan is doing such a good work distracting and dividing us, isn't he? Where is Christ's love to be found? Is it so painful to see, it is so painful to see people treat each other like this. It makes my heart hurt and my senses recoil. I'm embarrassed to be connected with such a group of people even. I don't want, want to leave the church by any means, but still cannot support this line of thinking and have, t- uh, and have told them as much. They may ask me to leave. <laughs> Thanks for your time and I continue to feel blessed by your teaching in your class group. Do we do similar things today? Do you think this is an isolated case? No. No. Think, the, think about it. Was, was the, the Judaizers requiring circumcision, were they throwing a barrier in the way of people who wanted to give their hearts to Christ? Weren't they? Yet circumcision, that barrier, at least has a Bible reference and a Bible instruction for it. And it was still a barrier and should have been done away with. Is requiring people to give up their sins, their habits, their character defects before baptism in harmony with the Bible. Does, does the Bible put these obstacles? Must we make ourselves holy before we come to Christ? Can we make ourselves holy before we come to Christ? No, it's only Christ who can free us, cleanse us, restore us, lest we come to him as we are. Yeah. So where where are the standards? Where do you draw the line? Is there does, is there a need to draw the line? You see, and this is the big question. The behavior that we need to have in the church. So why do we do it? You know, you, your question is honing in on why do we do it? Because we don't baptize into Christ. We baptize into an institution. And our institution has standards. Our institution, you must adhere to the health principles. You must... No. Ad- just a certain health principles. Just a certain health principles. Yeah. Yes, we, we, have, we have our particular criterion, and you must adhere to those. Smoking is, is out. Uh, a, a glass of wine uh, once a year uh, is out. Um, you know, uh, certain health principles. Um, as long as you're a vegetarian that eats um, nothing but high sugar content, you're good. Okay? No, um, no you're, this is exactly right. Are we baptizing into Christ or an institution? 
I, I tell you, if I look at the Bible, I don't see any of those things. People who wanted to give their hearts to Christ, Peter, Peter, Peter preached, uh, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the eunuch with Philip. I mean, anybody who wanted to be baptized was baptized. And then the process of transforming the life began, the walk, the journey. Uh, somebody says, that happened to me. They came to Christ just as they are, were baptized, and then after, all the cleaning up went on. Yeah, beautiful. Yes. Go ahead. I like the way Ty Gibson describes what baptism is. It's symbolic. The immersion process is symbolic of at the point that they want to give their life to Christ, we are then going to immerse them in the truth about God. Mm -hmm. And I think... We, we get it so wrong, it's like we want them to get to a certain standard, then we're going to immerse them into induction into a church. Instead of catching the symbolism of what baptism really is, that's when we should step forward and immerse them in the character of God. And we immerse them in the character of God, not only by doctrinal teaching, but by loving them as Christ loved the church. That's how we immerse them. When we immerse them into a list of rules, deeds to be done, sin to be shunned, all the things you have to hear to, we don't immerse them into Christ. We make it a burden. We make it hard. Yes? We have a long list of do's and don'ts. Aren't we like the Pharisees who make a long list of traditions? And Jesus condemned those traditions in Mark 7, 8 and 9. In vain do they worship me, teaching the commandments of man. You have to be very careful uh, not to teach commandments of men. Well said. Well said. Well, you know, we, this is what I said. If you, if you wait till you're good enough to come, perfect or whatever, you will never come. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph says, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he was not trying to produce a literary masterpiece. Instead, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Paul was addressing specific situations that involved him and the believers in Galatia. So, was Paul writing Galatians to Collegedale believers 2011? No, he was not. Is, it, is the message to Galatia written to you, to you, and to me? Might it not be written for us, not to us? Ah, okay. Might the uh, scriptures be written for, the messages are beneficial for us, but were they written to us? Do you think Paul had in mind people who lived like we live in a free society? Let, let's, 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 let's take a look at what Galatia was. Who were the Galatians? Galatia is an area in central western Turkey, and it gets its name from the Gauls who colonized that area uh, about uh, 3rd century B.C. The Gauls were the Celtic people of the Gallic tribes of Europe, and the Gallic tribes in Europe were defeated by Julius Caesar in the Gallic Wars. Uh, ultimately, he defeated them in Europe in 52 B.C., Julius Caesar. The people in the Galatian churches in western Turkey were descendants of these Gallic tribes. Many wars were fought in this region in Turkey. Alexander the Great conquered it, and after his death, it became part of the Seleucus uh, portion of the of the four divisions of the uh, of the Greek Empire. And later, in 63 B.C., Pompey defeated Antiochus uh, to gain Roman dominance over this region. You know, it's unclear which of the churches uh, in Galatia Paul was addressing in this epistle. But if you notice in Galatians 1 verse 2, he speaks to the churches in Galatia. The churches in Galatia. And the churches in Galatia were Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. 
Antioch at, at one time in the, was, the, was the third largest city in the world, having a population of over 500,000, second only to Rome and Alexandria. By the time Paul was writing, the population had decreased to 200 to 300,000, which is about the size of Chattanooga. So Antioch Church, the city, is, is about the size of Chattanooga. Antioch was chosen as the capital of the Seleucus Empire um, by ritual. How it was chosen? An eagle, which was the symbolic bird of Zeus. And Zeus, of course, was the Greek version of Baal. The Greek incarnation or form of Baal. It was given a piece of sacrificial meat, and where this bird landed was where they founded Antioch. They worship a pantheon of Roman and Greek gods in Antioch. Slavery was accepted and practiced. Women had few rights. Roman imperialism was the governmental model. Jewish legalism was pervasive. Earthquakes were common in this part of the world, and a major earthquake hit Antioch in 37 AD, causing Emperor Caligula to send two senators to Antioch to investigate the damage. And another major earthquake hit during the reign of Claudius between 41 and 54 AD. So this is, uh, this is Galatia. In Galatia, the book was written between 55 and 60 AD, shortly after two major natural disasters in a part of the world that was pagan and in which freedoms that we know did not exist. Do you think it was written to us? No. I don't think he had that in mind when he was writing it that somebody in 2,000 years would be reading it. Did Paul expect when he... This, this is what, what uh, Mar- Mar- Margaret said. She said, did pa- Paul didn't think people 2,000 years later would be reading it. Do you really... Did Paul think that we would actually still be here 2,000 years later? No. No, he didn't, yeah. A couple quick things. Yeah, first off, Paul's inspiration is God, so God's one who knew what truth needed to be put in the book that we have called the Bible... But back to an earlier point, I think it's real important. This is a family doctor, real sensitive. I know that we had a wedding, and my fun uncle thought it was fun to spike the punch. But one of his cousins was an alcoholic, and they almost got in a fist fight over this almost putting my other uncle prone to fall back into poor choices. So I just want to make sure, you know, Jesus says that you tithe your mint, and you know, there are different herbs, and that's okay. Just don't forget the weightier matters. So some of these things, like hopefully, you know, when Adam start drinking, that's a pretty way, negative sign from my mind, unless it's in their cough syrup and it's prescribed or something. So we got to be careful that we don't. So the question then comes, as we understand who this was written to, how do we understand Scripture when we read it? At the time it was written, and to whom? You see, some people approach Scripture as dictation from God. Word inspiration. Every word in the Bible is inspired of God. Some people, which is, and the Adventist view is, it's thought inspiration. And even more specifically, that the writers, the individual human beings, were inspired of God with ideas, concepts, and truths, and they were left free to use their own method of communication, their own style of communication, to express those, those, those truths. So we do not find God as an author in Scripture. You follow what I'm saying here? Okay? So when we read it then, it it would be very um, questionable to read the Scripture as a code book of how 
we should behave things to be done, sins to be shunned, and a system to be set up based on the instructions given to the people in this context. For instance, Paul told slaves to be loyal to their masters. Should we use that instruction, inspired of God, it's Bible, it's inspired, to endorse slavery? No. You see, we, we don't want to take everything literally as it reads. Same point about women in church. You notice how we're all embracing the idea we shouldn't have slaves, but we sure don't want to embrace the idea of women leader in the church, do we? Mm-mm. No. But, but they fall under the same context, the society in which Paul wrote. All right, Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson is about apostleship and Paul's authority as an apostle. An apostle means messenger, and the lesson points out in the strictest sense that apostle, the term apostle in the strictest sense was restricted to those who were personally instructed by Christ himself. So the 12 apostles, Paul, who had a a three-year instruction um, by uh, Christ after his conversion. And they were attacking Paul's ministry. And if you read the last paragraph, it says, yet they did not directly deny Paul's apostleship. They merely argued that it, it was not really too significant. They likely claimed that Paul was uh, not one of Jesus' original followers. His authority, therefore, was not from God, but from humans, perhaps from the church leaders from Antioch who commissioned Paul and Barnabas as missionaries. Consequently, they argued his message was merely his own opinion and not uh, the word of God. Why do people attack the credentials or qualifications of another person? What's the reason for doing that? That's what they were doing with Paul. To lessen the message. To lessen the message, and what, why do they do that? Why do they go behind the scenes to suggest that Paul's ministry wasn't really on the same level as the other 12? Why do they go behind the scenes to do this? Because they disagreed with it. They disagreed with the message, sure. But there's another reason. Why? They were jealous of his influence over the people. They were, they were, see, all these things are true. They were jealous with his influence. Uh, they disagreed with his message, but there's still another reason why. They wanted to proclaim their own message. They did want to proclaim their own message. All these things are true. There's still another reason why. Blessing his authority. If you can't destroy the message, you destroy the messenger. Okay? When you hold the truth and present the truth, lies will, head to head, truth destroys lies head to head. If you go at it head to head, the truth, the evidence will destroy lies. So if you don't have the truth, and you still want your deceptive, distorted message to go forward, you don't take the messenger with the truth on head-to-head. Look at Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel didn't work out for those that didn't have the truth. That's why they sent out armies to try and destroy Elijah before that day ever happened. Remember, the, the platoons kept hunting them. They wanted to destroy the messenger. Lucifer in heaven. What method, what method did Lucifer work in heaven? Open, he said, hey guys, I've got a dispute with Christ. I've got the truth. Christ is wrong. Let's have an open dialogue. Let's bring Christ out in the open. Let's bring me out in the open. Let's bring everybody out. Let's, let's, let's hack it out, hash it out right here in the open. Is that how it worked? Or did he go behind the scenes suggesting, distorting, twisting, and avoiding the open confrontation and, co- and conversation? Yes. Really rich here. Paul was the hero on the other side. And yet, when we, his own words are, we don't wrestle against each other, which we tend to do all, all too often. We wrestle against the principalities and powers of darkness. So if we can keep that in mind and we'll have the division of the brethren, 
So, so I'm, be productive because Paul converted. So I'm trying to point out the methodologies here. When Lucifer was misrepresenting Christ in heaven, if you're one of those angels in heaven, what's the healthiest response when Lucifer comes to you? Wouldn't it have been great to say, "Wow, Lucifer, I never considered that before. Uh, let's bring Christ over and let, let and let's and let the two of you let's let the two of you have a have a conversation and we'll we'll observe and and, and let you guys you know have that right out in the open and see where the evidence leads. And we can ask questions. And we can ask questions. Yes, we'll ask questions of you. We'll ask questions of Christ. Wouldn't Christ have loved that? Don't you think? Yes, they didn't do it. What about today? What's a healthy response today if someone comes to you and suggests so-and-so teaches against the church? So-and-so doesn't believe uh, this doctrine or that doctrine. Wouldn't the healthiest response be, well, let's bring them together. Let's have a conversation. Let's, let's sit together and, 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 break, and, and open the word together. Present your evidence. Let them present their evidence. Let the truth win the day. In public. In public. Open. Yeah. What do you think would happen today? Um, um, Paul, uh, Paul, Paul's argument in Galatians, what, what he did, how he articulated his apostleship. What do you think would happen today if someone stood up and claimed that they were an apostle, that they spent three and a half years in the desert and Jesus taught them personally? And they have a message now from Jesus, taught personally for three and a half years. Do you think that that person would be received warmly? Do you think that people back in Paul's day just... We're like, oh, that's cool. What if somebody were to come to us today and say, you know what, I, I, I've been gifted with the gift of prophecy. I've been having visions, dreams, and dreams. And I, I have a gift of prophecy. I have a message for the church. How should we respond to that? I bring us to bring, come into class and let's, let's talk about it. I, that's, we should examine the message, right? What is the message? Does it present truth as re- about God as revealed in Jesus? Is it in harmony with God's character? Is it in harmony with God's testable laws? Is it in harmony with Scripture? Does it enlighten, ennoble, promote autonomy, freedom of individuality? Or does the message reduce thinking and close down minds? Yes? It should be remembered that Paul was the most educated intellectual leader of the time. Well, the other guys were fishermen or retired fishermen. The education was much more limited than Paul's, and I think Paul's arguments carried the day for that reason. Besides the fact he was inspired like they were, but he was far more educated than they were. Yeah, I think education is beneficial. That's why we have such a good education system in our church. But education without inspiration, without the Holy Spirit, you know, as far as intellect goes, how intellectual on the scale do you think Lucifer was? He was a pretty sharp guy, I understand. Still is. Yeah. So you're, you're, I like what you did. Education and inspiration. Yeah. The, um, the ability to bring something for discussion is great, but sometimes the concepts and the evidence is so massive that you have to cover that an open forum is not the best venue. I can, I, can, I can appreciate that. Sometimes it can be so... Too, what Jesus said to his apostles, I have much to tell you, but you can't yet bear it. Sometimes the audience can't handle too much of the truth at once. One of the most scathing things Jesus ever said to the Pharisees was, you travel the earth looking for one convert, and when you find him, you make him twice the son of hell that you are yourselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's great. Wednesday's lesson, let's move on to Wednesday. Wednesday, it says, no other gospel. Um, it's talking about Paul's admonition in, in Galatians 1, and we're going to look at that, but it says, no other gospel. Today, today, here, 2011, is there more than one gospel being preached in the world? Within, within Christianity? Within Adventism? Well, let's look at some of the other general gospels being preached. We're not gonna, we can't hit them all because, you know, while there's one truth, how many lies are there? Infinite number of permutations and distortions and lies. But, but some of the big ones, Eastern mysticism. We become one with the universe through emptying oneself to the, to the forces of, of the cosmos and, and through empty and emptiness meditations. Um, my, mankind is slowly evolving to ever more advanced stages. In just a matter of time, we'll, we'll ultimately become uh, you know, supreme beings. Mankind can save itself by legislation and unified government. This is out there, guys. This, these ideas are out there. Um, the earth is our mother, and we must care for the earth and thereby save ourselves. God is angry at the nations and will punish those who don't accept the blood payment of a son. Israel has a special genetic advantage over the rest of humanity, and God gives them a different path to salvation than the rest of humanity. Hugely popular in Christianity. Hugely popular. There's just some. Anybody want to throw out any other Gospels that they've heard? What you just said is what forms our politics today. Yeah. So what does Paul say about those who present another Gospel? She says, let them be eternally condemned. One of the versions, I think, is good news? No, not good news. Um... Philip's translation, I think it is, um, uh, says, let them be damned to hell. That's what it says. This is what, this is what the quarterly says in the last paragraph. It says, pardon? Somebody have a comment? No. Um, last paragraph in the quarterly, it says, how were the Galatians deserting God? By turning to a different gospel. Paul is not saying that there is more than one gospel but that there were some in the church who, by teaching that faith in Christ was not enough, were acting as if there were another, another one. Paul is so upset by this distortion of the gospel that he desires that anyone who preaches a different gospel might fall under the curse of God. Paul was so emphatic about this point that he basically said the same thing twice. Galatians 1.8 and Galatians 1.9. Thoughts about that? True? Not true? How do you hear it? Anybody have the scripture? Galatians 1, 8, 9. Read it for us. Whoever finds Galatians 1, 8, 9, read it. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that's different from the one we have preached to you, may he be condemned to hell. We have said it before, and now I say it again. If anyone preaches to you a gospel that is different from the one that you accepted, may he be condemned to hell. And it's heard very much like the quarterly. You preach another gospel, either I want you to be condemned or God will condemn you to hell. That's how it's interpreted. Here, here's my paraphrase starting in one six. Uh, I'm shocked and amazed that you are so quick to reject the truth about God and turn away from his gracious character and methods of love as revealed by Christ. And instead of turning to a different message of good news, which really isn't good news at all, but a grand deception which will only destroy Event, evidently, there are some people who are twisting and perverting the good news about God that Christ has brought and thus throwing you into all kinds of confusion. But even if we or an angel from heaven should come to present a message of good news different than what we have already presented, 
a message that in effect misrepresents God and changes the meaning of what Christ accomplished, then he will be eternally lost because he will be presenting a message without the truth and with no power to heal and restore. As we have said once, so that no one will misunderstand, I now say it again, if anyone from anywhere, regardless of accompanying signs and miracles, presents a so-called message of good news different than what you have already accepted, he will be eternally lost because he will be presenting a false message with no power to heal and restore. What do you think? Why will they be eternally condemned? Because you're presenting a lie and God uses his power? Or because when you accept a false gospel, there's no power to save you? What what does Christ say about those who reject him that they love? They love death. Why do they love death? What is our natural condition from our human birth? What condition are we born into? A terminal condition. That's why we have to be reborn. We're born in a state that is incompatible with life as God designed it. And the gospel is the gospel of good news of a remedy that heals and saves. And if you exchange that remedy, so you think about a patient who has a terminal condition and trades the genuine remedy for a false remedy. What does the doctor have to curse and punish that patient? Will that patient experience a very bad outcome? That's what Paul is saying here. Those who come with a false gospel, they will be eternally lost, eternally condemned, because they've exchanged the only saving message for one that has no power to save. That's how it makes sense to me. What do you all think? The worst thing that affecting you you bring a trail of other people with you. That's true. You use your influence to cause other people to be lost. Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph. Tuesday's lesson. It says, One of the most unique features of Paul's letters is the way in which he links the word grace and peace in his greetings. The combination of these two words is a modification of the most characteristic greeting in the Greek and Jewish world, where a Greek author would write greetings, carrion, Paul writes grace, a similar sounding word in Greek, charis. To this, Paul adds the typical Jewish greeting of peace. Thoughts? What do you think about that? What is Paul saying in this process? This is his gospel in two words. His gospel in two words, which is? The grace of God brings peace to you. The grace of God brings peace to you. What does that mean? I had uh, a patient in my office yesterday that told me that their pastor... Um, recently recently left his position because he had an affair with the church organist and said he fell from grace. And I said, he fell into grace. Which is, which is right? When we sin, do we fall from grace or are we falling into grace? Yeah, do you see the subtle little twist that we... I've fallen from grace. No. We, are, we, all, we either fall into grace or we fall into hell. There's no other option, but we're all falling. In God's eyes, he fell into grace, but in the church's eyes, he quite possibly could have fallen out of grace. Yeah, she said, uh, in God's eyes, he fell into grace. But in the church's eyes, he fell out of grace. How, and why is that? 
because the church has a different standard than God has. Ooh, did I say that? Does it? How many, uh, how many um, believe that King David could be a leader in our church? Solomon could be a leader in our church. Abraham, a polygamist, could be a leader in our church. He didn't just have two. He had like four wives, you know. Jacob, could he be a leader in our church? There's a different standard that God has than we have. Yeah. God and Christ forgive immediately, but the church has a very difficult time forgiving. Well, it's because we have two different lenses through which we look at the sin problem. One lens is that legal penal model. We will really expand and and decompress this afternoon. And the other lens is the reality of our condition. God created us to operate in harmony with his nature and character of love. We are born on earth out of harmony with it. God recognizes that each one of us are born in a condition we did not choose. And without his intervention, his healing, his presence in our life, we will all function selfishly. And so when he sees that action in our lives, he understands this is symptomatic of a heart and mind out of harmony with his design. And his whole goal is simply to bring us to the point that we surrender to him, open the heart, and allow the Spirit to come in to what's the new covenant in Hebrews? I will write my law on your heart and mind. I'll write my Ten Commandments on your heart and mind. No. I'll write the principles upon which the Ten Commandments are based on your heart and mind. Self-sacrificing love, a transformation, a renewal of heart. So God sees us as patients all primed for healing. See, when a doctor walks in and sees a sick patient, he doesn't go, oh, you disgust me, get, re- get out of here. I only want the healthy ones. Bring the healthy ones in, they can be my patients. The sick ones, no, I don't want any of that. God says, this is why Jesus, bring the sick ones to me. I'm going to heal them. We're sick, guys. And he heals us. Two different lenses. The church wants the healthy ones. Or at least the ones on the outside who've learned how to put the makeup on and appear healthy. God wants the sick of heart. And if you read, accepts to Christ, Ellen White talks about not all sins are equal magnitude in God's eyes. Some sins are much more offensive to God. We, as humans, look at the drunkard and the, and the prostitute, and we think this is an offensive sin. These are not the sins that are most offensive to God. The sins most offensive to God are the sins of pride, Pharisee, Phariseeism. Why? Because they know no need. Those in the grosser sin, she says, will often realize their life has fallen apart, and they'll fall on their knees to Christ and say, I'm sick, help me, I'm a sinner. And then they experience transformation, healing, regeneration. Those who have the, well, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I, I've lived my life by all the rules. i got all the checklists, set all my memory verses each week. got my little gold stars in Sabbath school. <laughs> I don't need. I don't need Laodicea. We think we're rich and filled with goods, but we're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. This is what's most offensive. Yes? Remember that Jesus ate with the prostitutes and the publicans and the sinners, but he was condemned for it by the Pharisees. Exactly right. Because two lenses, two complete lenses. George? It's rich to see, you know, Mary Magdalene changed her lifestyle, and Matthew changed his lifestyle too. So it's it seen God comes in, He loves you, and He's able to transform you. So if they really stay in grace, you know, they will rectify and see if they can restore whatever can be restored if the person will forgive them. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, um, this afternoon, oh, Margaret, 
as far as grace is concerned, it wasn't even necessary until there was sin. The angels don't experience grace. They've never sinned. And, and doesn't Paul say where there is, where sin abounds, grace abounds? No, no, Margaret, why would you open up that can of worms when I'm about to close? <laughs> Serious. I'm, I, my goodness. Yeah, Margaret. You sweet, you sweetie, you. Okay. She said angels don't experience grace. Really? I understand they don't re- experience saving grace. Grace that transforms and restores a sinner. But is God ungracious? Is he less gracious to the angels? I mean, doesn't grace come from the gracious being who's extending grace? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our, our fellowship here together today. We thank you that you've given us your love into our hearts, and we open our hearts and recognize your need, our need for your presence to transform and heal. We pray that we as a group here locally and our group outside on the internet that listen each week will we'll experience the bonds of love growing stronger every day, that we might come into a, a oneness of, of friendship and, and, and harmony that you've designed. We pray that our, our ideas that keep us in fear and separate from each other will be broken down and you will break down those dividing walls we pray that you will empower us as a, as a people to take the good news about you to the world, that this world may be lightened, because we really want to see you coming, Lord, and we know that when the gospel goes, you're going to come. Uh, we pray now that, um, again, you'll be with Dennis as he's healing, that his body will recover and he, his pain will resolve, and, his, and he will be back to fellowship with us very soon. Thank you now in your holy name. Amen. <laughs>